Number two is uh, that it's already April and I haven't said the B word for uh, nearly two, two months now. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask somebody next to you. And, uh, and then the last thing, and I found that it's true, is that absence does make the heart grow fonder. I, you know, if you're away for a while, you find out how much you, you miss subjecting yourself to this every week. And um, it's kind of like the, uh, the farmer who loaded his pigs on a pickup truck and took them to the stud service. And uh, when he got them there, uh, afterwards he said, you know, how am I going to know if this works or not? And the guy said, well, in the morning if you look out the window and the pigs are rolling around in the grass, then it took. And if they're not, then it didn't. You'll have to bring them back. Well, so the next morning when I looked out the window and uh, the pigs are rolling around in the mud, so he loaded them up on the truck and he took them back. And uh, the next morning we looked out the window, they were rolling around in the mud again, so he loaded them up on the pickup truck, took them back. And this went on for six days. And so finally, he was, he was so frustrated, he said to his wife, I can't take it anymore. Would you look out the window and tell me if they're rolling in the mud? And she looked at it and said, no, they're not rolling in the mud. He said, oh, great, are they rolling in the grass? She said, no, they're not rolling in the grass. He goes, I don't understand. Then what's going on? She said, it's the strangest thing. They're all sitting in the back of the pickup truck. <laughs> so, anyway. It's uh, good to be back. Uh, for, uh, for, those of you, uh, for those of you who are visiting this morning or haven't been here for a while, um, I thought it would be good that we kind of update everybody on what's going on. We've been talking about in the last uh, month before our missions conference and before Easter, uh, we've been talking about a subject that's relevant to everybody that's here and everyone that's in with the sound of my voice, and that is the, uh, the subject of personal integrity. And uh, if you recall, we had difficulty in, de in defining what integrity was. And the problem that we saw in defining integrity was that many of us uh, were under the common belief that if we, quote, lived out our convictions or what we believed we then acted upon and we were sincere with it, that somehow or another that would qualify us for being people of integrity. Now, that may be what we're led to believe, but it's not hard to do, uh, refute such logic. And I think a person may believe what they're doing is right and follow out on their beliefs, the sincerity of their beliefs, but as, we t as it turns out, that what they're doing is sincerely wrong. You know, and it doesn't take a genius to look at the newspapers today and to read about all the things that people sincerely believe are right and they follow out the, uh, the integrity, what they would think is the integrity of their heart, which is the sincerity of it, so they go ahead and they act upon it and they're wrong. I mean, we look at things like apartheid and racial discrimination with the, uh, um, the skinheads now that are coming out and, and they're trying to uh, redo something that, that shouldn't be redone. And uh, so we read that and are they sincere and they're interviewed and yeah, they're sincere. Are uh, people that advocate racial discrimination sincere? Many of them are. So if it was by that interpretation or definition, then they would be people of integrity. So they follow out on their actions, the sincerity of their beliefs. Uh, we see it right now with abortion. The whole issue of abortion, as we look at the media and as, as they uh, present the issue, we find out as people are interviewed, those who are, quote, pro-choice um, or pro-life, both sides are very sincere about what they believe, and therefore they carry out their actions in the sincerity of their beliefs. 
And we find it all around us in society. We see it now with homosexuality. We read in a paper about uh, Laguna Beach where they're going to have, openly, they're going to have their parade coming up sometime this year. And so, as they're interviewed, are they sincere about what they believe? And there's no question of the sincerity. And, and as we gauge that, we say, well, they sound so sincere. And, you know, how can what they'd be doing, is, is it right or wrong? And so, as we look at that, they carry out the actions that they're sincerely believe are correct. But the problem that we had is, what makes apartheid right or wrong? What makes abortion right or wrong? What makes homosexuality right or wrong? What makes premarital sex, extramarital sex, right or wrong? See, and if it goes by the, the sincerity of the person being interviewed, uh, then we could be swayed either direction. The question that I have is, what does make it right or wrong? See, and that's the biggest problem that we wrestle with. What does, as you hear both sides of the abortion issue being interviewed on a regular basis now, what makes you swing one direction or the other? What makes one issue right, one issue wrong? As you see the, uh, uh, the issue of racial, racial discrimination coming to the forefront again, although it's been going on all over the world and it goes on still in certain parts of this country, what makes it right or what makes it wrong? See, that's what we need to address and that's what we need to deal with. And the problem is, is it the sincerity of the person who carries out the action that makes it right or wrong? We like to say things like, um, as long as you can live with yourself, then that's okay. Or, you know, on the other hand, you have people say, I don't know how they can live with themselves. As if to say, if they could live with themselves and do what they're doing, then it must be okay, but I myself couldn't live with myself if I did what they were doing. You follow what I'm saying? So it gets to be really difficult, doesn't it? How do you define what is right or wrong? See, and how many of you have ever been put to the point of saying, I am dead set against this issue, and then find yourself in a position where you need to make a decision, whereas before you never were involved in it, now you're involved in it, and a choice to stand firm on what you believed was right or wrong would now cost you something personally. You follow me? I am totally against abortion until I find that at the age of 38 or 40 that we're now pregnant with a child and at one time, I was totally against it, but now my circumstances have thrown me into a different category, and that is a category of a person who is now personally involved. How do I determine whether I'm still dead set against it, now that if I continue to take that stance, it is going to cost us something personally, whether it's inconvenience, whether it's a risk of whatever health would be involved in the delivery at an age such as that, and we go through all the g gymnastics about why well, I used to be against it, but now I don't know. See, gee, I don't know if I can be so dogmatic about it anymore. And you throw out whatever it is that you are totally against, but all of a sudden you find that you're, you're in a position where if you continue holding that stand, it's going to cost you something. So how do you define what's right or wrong? Well, we've come to the conclusion, and that's why we're here, that we have an objective standard because highly subjective issues don't allow for objective decisions. Follow what I'm saying? So, we've got to step back or outside of the realm of what we personally are now experiencing to say, regardless of what the cost is, I know that this is what the truth is, and that's what we're going to continue to do even though it may cost us something. So we turn to a book that has complete objectivity. 
we look at it and say, okay, what does God have to say about racial discrimination? What does God have to say about abortion? What does God have to say about premarital sex, extramarital sex? What does God have to say about homosexuality? Because as long as it remains objective, then we can take a look at it, but we know that once it becomes subjective, then it gets real cloudy. And we've seen that. You know people in your own life, and you probably yourself have been forced to that decision of saying at one point in time, I am totally against this issue, but now that I'm involved in it, I've got to rethink it. <coughs> eh, it's not quite as cut and dried as it used to be. See, it's always cut and dried in somebody else's life. You ever notice that? It's so easy to see it. When somebody else is doing it, it's cut and dried, and where it's easy, objectivity oh, isn't a problem. And then when it becomes us, you go, wait a minute, well, let's not get so dogmatic. Let's not get so legalistic. I don't know, whatever you want to throw at. Let's not get so whatever if it means that now I've got to apply the same standards to my life. So we go to something totally objective, and we say, what does God have to say about it? So we look at the Bible and say, God says this about abortion. Regardless of whether we find ourselves at 38 or 40 now pregnant, we say God is dead set against abortion, so now we will live with the program, the plan that God has for our life. Do we understand it? No. Do we like it sometimes? No. Does it make it right to do what we want to do? No. So we've concluded that the definition of a person of integrity is one who lives in a manner that's pleasing to God, continues to do so, trusting the Lord in His ways, despite the circumstances and pressures that come from a hostile environment. That is the biblical definition of integrity. And we've seen it demonstrated in the lives of four men. Their names are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we've seen it demonstrated in different ways. The first way that we saw it demonstrated was in creativity over compromise. God has a lot of room in His program for us to become more creative in how we handle things. Not always is it a matter of, you've got to do it this way. But there's a lot of room in that program to say, you know what, I see what your objectives are. I would like to accomplish those objectives, but I don't agree with the means in which you're asking me to do it. If we can change the means to do it, I'm all for it and let's go for it. There's room for creativity. But when there isn't room for creativity, we saw them demonstrate integrity and courage over cowardice. That said, you know what, you've got it to the line that we can't compromise anymore. We've got to go ahead and continue as uh, we read in the book of Acts. We must obey God rather than man. There are times when our faith is going to be put on the line that says you're going to either do things man's way or you're going to do things God's way. Which way is it going to be? A person of integrity says, I don't care what the consequences are. I don't care what the pressures are. I'm going to continue to do things God's way. And then the last thing that we saw was we saw them demonstrated in the area of uh, integration over segmentation where every part of their lives were dominated by the Word of God. They just didn't come in on Sundays, read their Bible, have a neat lesson that they went through, hear a great sermon, and say, boy, that sure was good for Sunday. Now let's see what happens next Sunday, but now let's go through the rest of our week just kind of like, you know, hopefully finding our way through it. No, what they did was they said, every day of our lives, we integrate the Word of God into every decision that we make. Every problem that comes up, every decision that has to be made, we filter it through the Word of God, and that's how we're going to live our lives. There is no big decisions, there is no little decisions in the program of God. Everything God wants to be involved in in your life. So that's how we saw them demonstrate integrity throughout their lives. This morning we're going to take a look at another principle and turn to Daniel chapter 4. And I'm going to introduce it by asking a question. Have you ever seen a situation where someone 
in a particular field of endeavor has made it to quote the top and the media flocks around him and they ask him the question that they always ask and it's kind of like journalism 1A if you've ever seen it they go what did you do to get to the top what did you do to become successful how did you do it we all want to know what's that what's that uh, inquisitive minds would like to know that's oh inquire I didn't say oh well, how do you know what that is oh you heard her say it oh, is it good just relay that up there for me appreciate it but it's like we want to know have you seen it in the locker room you've seen it in business interviews we've seen it where somebody has now reached the top uh, we've seen it with uh, Peter Ubroff. Uh we've seen it with uh, uh, Pickens we've seen it with uh, Donald Trump we've seen it with uh, now uh, Merv Griffin we've seen it with all of them right and every one of them want to know what did you do tell us please share with us the secret to get to where you're at what are some of the answers hard work hard work what else we set goals I set goals I set this goal and this is what I wanted to do and I let nothing stop me from accomplishing this goal I mean nothing I just went for it I set the goal I grabbed the golden ring I went for it and that's why I'm here and that's why you all want to know something about me hard work set goals what else how'd you get to where you're at come on you out there who are up there no, no, no one wants to admit it, right? Um, luck. Luck, okay. Yeah, the old luck factor is kind of thrown in there, you know? Well, and, that, and that's like when they get real confused and they start scratching their head, they kind of go, luck. I talked to a guy who's a good friend of mine. I won't mention any names, but he's been a, a professional athlete now for 13 years. And I asked him the same question. He had a different answer. I'll share with you later what it is. But he said, you know what the amazing thing is? He goes, when I came out of college, there were guys that were All-American. I was never All-American. There were guys that uh, were drafted in the first, second round. I was drafted in the fifth round. Another friend was a free agent. He said, I've been around 13 years. I've seen guys that were a lot better than me, a lot bigger than me, a lot stronger than me, a lot faster than me. I've seen every one of them, and they never made it. He had a conclusion, and I'll share with you later what it was. But you kind of scratch your head and go, well, then why did that happen? And so then when you start to throw out the suggestions like, well, maybe they didn't want it as bad. Oh, no, they wanted it bad. I mean, they wanted it bad. They lived, breathed, eat football, boy. They slept with the football under their head. They studied their plays. They had a great attitude. They worked out. They worked hard. Sometimes, I mean, they ran. They worked every day. It wasn't that they didn't want it. They wanted it bad. Oh, so that's not what it is. Uh, they didn't go to college. They didn't study hard. Maybe it's in business. They didn't go to college. They didn't get their MBA. They didn't go for their PhD. I did that. They didn't do that. And that's probably what separates me from them. Oh, no, because I know a guy got a PhD and, then, and it didn't work for him. I don't understand. What's the missing ingredient to this, this formula for success? See, because every one of them that give an answer, there's a lot of confusion because they know themselves they know a lot of people who are just like they are, did the same things they did, and they didn't make it. No one's interviewing them, but somebody's interviewing them, though. So they scratch their head, and they walk away, and they say, you know what? <laughs> they don't tell the media that because the media is enamored by them. But they leave the interview, and they scratch their head and say, 
I, I, I don't understand it. They sure sound confident when they address the media, but they leave there and go, I don't know. What does separate us? What makes some of us more visible than others? We're going to see from the life of a man, and it's surprising who it is. It's not one of the four top players that we've been talking about, but it's the king of Babylon. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And he's got to deal with the same question because they were all asking him the same thing. Neb, baby, look at this empire you built. Kind of the Donald Trump of his days. Look at this empire that you've built. Look at the things you've got going on. Do you have any other uh, joint ventures you're planning or do you have any takeovers you're, you're now plotting? What is it? Can you give us the inside scoop? We'd really like to know because uh, maybe we can get a little inside hand, a little inside scoop, and we can buy some stock. So they address the issue. And did you ever have someone say, when you're suffering, have you ever said, why me? Probably not. How about, okay, then how about when things are going great, have you ever said, why me? Have you ever stopped to look at yourself in light of what's going on in your life and you know a lot of other people that don't have nearly what you have and say, why me and not them? See, it's just not suffering that causes us to question why me. It's just not adversity, but it's prosperity as well that forces us to deal with the why me and not them. Nebuchadnezzar had to deal with it. And he came to some conclusions, Daniel chapter 4. And it's going to be interesting to see what those conclusions are because what we see around us today, I don't know about you, but anytime I, every time I hear someone tell me why they're where they're at, it just causes tremendous confusion in the lives of everybody that's listening. Because if it's they studied hard, or they worked hard, or they wanted it, they had a good attitude, they had the degrees, whatever it was, if it's because of all that, see, that's never good enough. That's when they throw in, and a little luck. That's it. Isn't that it? See, that's what separates us from them, you from them, and that is everything else is the same, all the qualifications are the same, everything on paper, the resume is the same, but what they do is they throw in, well, and I was lucky, a little luck. A little luck, a little good timing. Market was right. Environment was right, and I think that's what it was. So they throw that in, then you kind of go, shoot, if I'd just been lucky, I'd be there too. That's what's missing in my life, luck. Nebuchadnezzar didn't say that. Verses 1 through 3, he comes to the conclusion, okay? Don't look at the conclusion. Let's do a little flashback. This is like this is where they get the idea for movies. Right out of here. Said, oh, look, here's a conclusion. But then they explain it, so let's do a movie like that. That'd be good. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I related to the, the dream to him. So he's about to tell him the dream. But I want you to notice the suspicion in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar is the same suspicion that many of us have, and that is, why me? Do you notice? It says in verse 4 that I was at ease in my house. I was kind of flourishing in my palace. Not exactly the picture of adversity. Things were going great. Everything was easy. I was flourishing. I had a diversified portfolio. 
I followed all of the instructions in all of the books and found out that with this diversified portfolio that I can now take it easy, kick back and relax because I was virtually recession proof. I had the percent, right percentage of liquidity, I had the right percentage tied up in real estate, I had the right percentage tied up in stocks and bonds and junk bonds and mutual funds. And I had it the, the way that it was supposed to be. And because of that, I knew nothing could happen to me that was going to harm me. And I was at ease and I was flourishing and things were going really good. Ever find yourself in that position? Man, that's great. Things are great. Problem is in verse 5, he says, I saw a dream. It made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Very strong contrast, isn't it? Everything's going good on the outside, but inside, I'm not having too good a time. I lay on my bed. How many of you do some of the best thinking laying in bed? How many of you do your only thinking laying in bed? <laughs> Seriously. No, I, didn't, I, I don't mean that you know, in a cruel way, but uh, you're, you're so busy during the day, you don't have time to think. You know what I mean? Your schedule is so hectic and you're so busy and you're so jammed, the only time you have a chance to think is when you finally, you know, you get out of the shower, you lay in bed and go, huh. And then all of a sudden, your brain kicks in. And you, and you kind of go, where have you been all day? And you start to think. In the quietness of the moment, we do some of our pro, most profound thinking because we're too busy otherwise. Too hectic. And I think a lot of us maintain schedules that make sure we don't ever have to think. You know why? Because it's when you lay in bed and you begin to think about what your life's all about that you have to deal with the most profound issues. Man, you know what? I'm flourishing. Everything is going good. I'm at ease during the day. But when I lay in bed at night, my spirit just wrestles within me. I am having a miserable time dealing with all this. Because the diversified portfolio that everybody said if I got would answer all life's problems somehow isn't doing it. And I know that I'm, I'm following all the right directions and I know that things are going real good in my life and all the material things that I've began to accumulate aren't making me uh, satisfied and aren't bringing contentment and don't bring peace in my life. So on the outside, everything is going great. But when I finally, after the hecticness of all the schedules and appointments and phoning people back, I lay in bed and go, there's something missing in my life. What am I doing? And he laid on his bed. Boy, you know what? We need to stop and really look at that hard. He laid on his bed. On one hand, he's at ease and flourishing on the outside. And underneath it all, he's fearful and there's, alarm, and there's alarm in his life. What's going on? How many of you look at somebody else and say, boy, you know what? If, if I just have what they have, then that's going to that's gonna do it. That'll bring it. See, if I just have this over here that I look at and see, that I see that you have, if I had what you have, then I'd be at ease and I'd be flourishing too, and that would solve all of my problems. Have you ever uttered that? Have you have maybe even a goal right now? Your goal is just to have that, and once you have that, then you're set. Simon Garfunkel wrote a song that was great. It's uh, on their album, uh, Sounds of Silence. And it's amazing to me how often God brings back things in my life that I remember when I was growing up and a lot younger. And, and the words just stand out in your mind. They wrote a song that was about a guy, and his name was Richard Corey. And the, and the lyrics go something like this. Said, they say that Richard Corey owns one half of this whole town. 
with political connections to throw his wealth around. Born into society, a banker's only child, he had everything a man could want, power, grace, and style. But I, I work in his factory, and I curse the life I'm living, and I curse my poverty, and I wish that I could be, I just wish that I could be, I wish that I could be Richard Corey. And then it goes on and talks about how the media followed him around and they reported when he was at the opera and they reported when he was at the show and they reported all the activities of this man's life and he continued to contrast himself to Richard Corey, but I work in this factory, I just curse this life I'm living. And so then one day he goes, you, want, you know, and much to my surprise, I pick up the newspaper and read that Richard Corey put a bullet through his head. But, but I work in his factory and I still curse the life I'm living, and I curse my poverty, and I wish that one day, I just wish someday, that I could be Richard Corey. See, there are a lot of people in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom that were looking at him saying, boy, you know what, one day I just wish that I could be Nebuchadnezzar. It'd be hard to write a song to, hard to come up with something that, <laughs> that would rhyme. Oh, but I, uh, I work in his hanging gardens, and I curse, but, you know, something like that. But... But it's like there are a lot of people on the outside of that palace and they were looking in saying, if I could just be him and I'd be at ease and I would be flourishing and there'd be nothing wrong in my life, boy, oh boy. You know what? And then I look at this story and I begin to put the two together and the conclusions are the same 25 centuries later. So he begins to tell him a dream about what was going on. And so on the outside, everything's going good. On the inside, it's not going too good. But yet all the people on the outside still want to be on the inside, even though they don't know the guy on the inside is ready to put a gun to his head. See, the deception is there. We all want to be on the inside. So Nebuchadnezzar, as he lays in bed, he begins to come up with some profound thoughts. And he needs help because he's got a problem. And so what he did was he called in all the magicians and all those, and he had a suspicion that something wasn't right. Do you have that same suspicion? Something is not right. I don't care what my net worth is. I don't care what it looks like on the outside. I'm laying in bed here and something's not right. I suspect I got a problem. He suspected the same thing. So you know what he did? He called for advice. He said, so I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, diviners came in. I relayed a dream with them. But, oh, surprise, surprise, Nebi, can you believe it? They couldn't tell him what was going on in his life. Now, that is a major surprise to me because he's already found out from chapter 3 that they don't have a clue what's going on. Doesn't it, isn't it ironic that the first people he turned to for advice on his problem were the same people that couldn't answer it the last time, but he's hoping that maybe this time they can? Or what he's doing, he's hoping that maybe they'll tell him something that he wants to hear, make himself feel good about what he's going through. You know, kind of the aspirin of saying, hey, look, don't worry about it. You know what? People are just trying to make you feel guilty for all the things that you have. See, people that don't have it always make people that do have it feel guilty about it. So just take a couple of aspirins or, or just leaf through your balance sheet, you know, and then go to bed and you'll sleep better. You know how it is? So the problem is, so he goes to people he wants to hear what he wants to hear. I ask you the same question. Do you go to people who are going to tell you what you want to hear or people that tell you what you need to hear? See, Nebuchadnezzar right now didn't need to hear that it was all the poor people that were making him feel guilty about what he had. He didn't need to hear that. He wanted to hear that so then he can go on with his life and continue to flourish and be at ease. But what he needed to hear was what God wanted him to hear and that's why Daniel comes on the scene. People, don't go to people who, want to tell you, who are going to tell you what you want to hear. See, because it becomes subjective again. It goes back to our introduction. You need to go to people who can objectively say, you know what, 
I may not have the money that you have. I may not even be in the position that you're in. But from what we're talking about, I mean, God deals with it. Why don't you look at what God has to say and I can kind of pick you and choose the right places for you. You read it. Allow God to work in your life. And then you deal with it. Because, see, I, you need objectivity at this point. You don't need subjectivity. Many of us go in and circle ourselves with people who are just like us, who flourish on the outside or at ease, and then we lay in bed at night and we're miserable as can be, but we don't, we don't allow each other to know that. So we just become subjective in all of our answers, and we need to go to something objective. So Nebuchadnezzar went to the subjective answer, and you know what he found out? <laughs> that isn't going to work. I still got the same problem. So then he goes, but finally, I love this, God is great. Verse 8, but finally, Daniel came in. You know what it reminds It's like the last place we turn is the objective word of God. It's like, oh no, don't start bringing the Bible into this again. I'm so sick of every time I got a problem that you got to bring the Bible into it. Don't you know anything yourself? And I always say, no, I don't. And you should be glad because if I knew anything, I'd be just as dumb as you because that's what you know. The same thing. We all know the same stuff. So why don't we just go somewhere that's a, somewhere a little smarter than us and find out what he has to say. Okay. Daniel came in. Nebuchadnezzar told him the dream. And he went through and saved some time. He went through and he told him about this dream, about what was going on. There was this big tree in the, in, in the middle of the world. The world could see this tree. And in its branches, I mean, everything flourished. There was foliage. There was fruit. There was shade. There was protection. There was security. I mean, the whole world could see this tree. That's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. See, now that wouldn't bother you. At ease, flourishing. All of a sudden, someone comes down from heaven, an, an, an angelic host comes down, and they chop the tree down. Whoops, now the tree's down. There's a stump that's left. Now that would bother Nebuchadnezzar. The rest of it he kind of liked up to that point. But then when the tree got chopped down, he started to have a problem with it, and he said, I want to know what this dream is all about. So finally, he turns to the man who has an inside track on the Word of God, on the knowledge of God, who thinks like God, has the wisdom of God, because God has, has given him the ability to do this. So he finally turns to him and says, okay, what's going on? And so now Daniel comes to some conclusions. And look at uh, verse 19. It says, And Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Do not let the dream alarm you and he went on to say my lord if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries can you just imagine right now I know Nebuchadnezzar saying oh no not again it's like oh here we go again you know last time he told him that his kingdom wasn't going to last forever that it was going to be it was going to be wiped out and it's like every time Daniel opens his mouth you know it's like bad news for Nebuchadnezzar's program and he kind of went oh not again now what's going to happen so the king responds and said, tell me the dream. And anyway, so here's uh, the prescription that Daniel has to offer. So he went through and he told him the dream. And he said, basically, in a nutshell, the king, the, the tree is you. And you're offering protection. You're offering uh, comfort to the world. You know, the whole world is, uh, you're visible by the whole world. Man, I mean, you've got it on top. Everything's going great. But God says, I'm going to chop this tree down. I'm going to chop it down. And I'm going to replace it with something else. So he goes through it. And the reason in verse 25 is he says, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over all the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And that in it that he was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, 
from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there, be, there may be a prolong, prolonging of your prosperity. Prescription was, hey, you know what? Until you recognize that it's God who put you there, then you're going to lose it all. And you know what he told him to do? He said, hey, but you have the ability right now to repent of what you're doing, to stop what you're doing, and to recognize that it's God who's in authority over all of the earth. That God places you as a king in the right place. He places you as a business manager, as a president, as a CEO. He places you as a mother, as a, as a homemaker, as a husband. He places you in that position, and it's God who puts you there until you recognize that He is in the authority of your life, then you're going to have some major problems. And so that was the prescription. He said, stop what you're doing and begin to recognize that God is an authority. But you see, this is where Nebuchadnezzar fell into some confusion like a lot of us do. And, and his uh, prosperity caused his confusion. It didn't help it at all. Because we see in verse 28, and it says, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Can you picture this for a moment? He's standing on the roof. I mean, it's like, you know, go out and stand on the roof of your business. And you look down and you just say, Hey, wait a minute. Isn't this, I mean, didn't I work hard for this? Didn't I go to school for this? Don't I deserve this? Isn't this the reason so that I could glorify myself? Isn't that why I've got my name in my business logo? I mean, isn't that why my name's up on the building? But we, we like to say it's because, well, if your name's up there and you ever sell your business, it's worth a lot more in goodwill. So they say, oh, that's why I'm going to put my name up there. Hey, you put your name up there because you want everybody driving by there to know that's your business. That's who I am. That's my identity in this world. So, that's what happens. So Nebuchadnezzar wasn't wrestling with anything we don't wrestle with. And he stood up there on the, on the uh, roof and looked down and said, didn't I do a wonderful job? You heard D Donald Trump be interviewed? Next time, plug him into this whole equation and just kind of, yeah, Donald, you're something else. Because that's exactly what he'll say. Didn't I do all this? Am I not wonderful? Am I not great? Can I not just take over the world if I want to? As if he doesn't. So that's what he was doing. Now Babylon was a great place. Don't make any mistakes about it. We're talking a wonderful place. One of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. How many of you ever been to Kauai? You ever been to Kauai? How many of you have gone to the world famous Fern Grotto? Uh, if you've been there, you're chuckling. This is some place, isn't it? <laughs> And then there's no way you can get out of there. It's like they take you down this little river, you know, up to this cave, and it's great. They take you up there and they say, this is the world-famous Fern Grotto. And, and you're kind of going, I wish I had a world-famous kayak to get out of here. What a ripoff. But, but anyway, for those of you who thought it was neat, um, the, the, uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon made this thing look like an elementary school science project. I mean, 
this Babylon was wonderful. The hanging gardens were tremendous. What he saw was great. It was a city that had a river flowing through the middle of it. There was, it was invincible. It was secure. The only way that anybody could conquer a city in the old days, you circle it and you, and you, uh, and you starve everybody or they um, you know, die of thirst and they have to come out and surrender. They had a river going through the middle of it. They had enough land inside there to feed the population. This place was wonderful. And he stood there and he looked over and going, man, this is great. I'm an unbelievably cool dude. And so, now the problem was, while the word was in the king's mouth, the voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. Now, you know what's amazing to me? People always blame God for everything. You notice that? How could God do what he's about to do to this man? Because what he's going to do to this guy is, is unbelievable. They say, well, how could God do this? You know what I say? How can he be so stupid that it took him a year... And he never heeded the counsel that Daniel gave him before that. See, why don't we turn things around a little bit and stop blaming God for everything and shaking your fist in his face, but say, boy, you know what? He sure was patient with me. He sure was long-suffering with me. He sure gave me a lot of rope before he finally yanked it on me. I mean, it's been 12 months here between the time he told him about it and the time now that he did something about it. And instead of shaking your fist in God's face, why don't you just look at yourselves and say, boy, you know what? God sure was merciful to me and I sure was stubborn. Because that's Nebuchadnezzar. So anyway, it says that uh, you'll be driven away in verse 32 from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claw. Real pretty sight. Picture Howard Hughes. I mean, let's put it in the contemporary environment here. So far we got Donald Trump and Nebuchadnezzar. We got, yeah, Donald Trump playing Nebuchadnezzar. We have Howard Hughes playing Nebuchadnezzar in his lighter years. And, uh, you know, this is an ugly sight. It is an ugly sight. But you know what? God still does the same thing today. You're not, maybe you're not out there grazing in the grass, but what has He done to catch your attention? See, God is long-suffering. God is loving and He is patient. And He is kind. And He'll give you time to repent of what you're doing. But when it finally gets to the point that there's nothing left to do but to pull the rug out from under your feet, He will do that because He loves you. Hebrews 12 says that he whom he loves, he will discipline and he will reprove as a father does a child. You'll get, you'll get rope, but sometimes, somewhere along the line, he's going to pull the rope because he loves you that much. I don't know what he's going to do to catch your attention. Because if you think, like Nebuchadnezzar did, that it's by your hands that you are as wonderful as you perceive yourself to be, then God's got another program for you that you're going to need to heed. And he came to that conclusion, and I love it because... Basically, I, I ran across an article in a, another tremendously theological, theologically profound book. It's called Sport Magazine. I can find illustrations anywhere. As long as I can find the page that I marked them on. There we go. But this is great. And he came to this conclusion. Look at verse 34. Not of sport, but of your Bible. And, he, and Nebuchadnezzar came to this conclusion, he said, But at the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, 
and he said, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hands or say to him, What hast thou done? And it's no, no coincidence that as he concluded that, it says, And at that very time my reason returned to me. Isn't that amazing? That's wonderful. And at that very time my reason returned to me. See, there's, there's clarity amidst the confusion. And the clarity is that God is that missing ingredient. See, it's God, that intangible that we call luck and that we call timing and that we call good fortune. It's God who should be plugged into the equation. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it nice to know that you don't have to be confused anymore about why you're where you're at? Because if you just recognize the fact it's God who put you there, it's God who's involved in your life, it's, it's God who is... a actively and earnestly involved in every area of your life. You plug, that you plug his name into the equation and it all makes sense. It's not confusing anymore. Anyway, back to Sport Magazine. Davis Miller. Davis Miller happened to drive by one day to uh, Muhammad Ali's uh, mother's home, saw that he was there and thought, thought I'd drop by to visit him. And he wrote a great article. It's wonderful what he wrote. Because he was just, he was fascinated I mean, it's like this guy was his idol, Muhammad Ali. He was fascinated by it. He followed him. He, he wanted to be just like him. Uh, he was a boxer as well. And everything Muhammad Ali did, he wanted to emulate. I mean, this is a, he wanted to be just like him. So anyway, they went out and they bought some videos. And they're going to watch all his old fights on this video. And uh, so they did that. And they kind of turned the volume down. And he, and he writes, with the volume turned this low on the TV, you could hear the videotape steady whir. And he said, Champ, do you mind if I ask you a serious question? And he nodded, okay said, you're still a great man, champ. I see that, but a lot of people think your mind is fried. Does that bother you? Now, I spent the whole day with him before he finally got the courage to ask him that. And they said, uh, he didn't hesitate before he answered. No, there are ignorant people everywhere. Even educated people can be ignorant. He said, does it bother you that you're a great man who's not allowed to be great? He said, what, what do you mean, not allowed to be great? I mean, well, let me, let me think about what I mean. I mean, the things you seem to care most about, the things you really enjoy doing, the things the rest of us think of as being Muhammad Ali, those are exactly the things that have been taken from you. It just doesn't seem fair, does it? He, Ali said, you don't question God. Davis Miller said, okay, I respect that, but, oh, man, I, I don't have any business uh, talking to you about this anyway. And Ali said, no, go ahead. He said, it just bothers me, I told him. I was thinking about the obvious ironies, thinking about Ali continuing to invent and be invented... Uh, his own late 20th century mythology about how he used to talk more easily, maybe better than anybody in the world, how he often still thinks with speed and dazzle, but it takes serious effort for him to communicate even with the people closest to him, and about how he may have been the world's best athlete when just walking he used to have the, the grace of a cat turning corners, and now at night he stumbles around the house, about how his left hand, the most visible source of his boxing greatness, that awesome left jab, the hand that won more than 150 fights. I mean, it's his left hand, not his right, that shakes almost continuously. And I was thinking how his major source of pride was his prettiness. It remains intact, more or less, and if he lost 30 pounds, it'd still look classically Greek, despite not expecting to encounter the miraculous anymore uh, than any other agnostic, 
I'm sort of spooked by the seeming precision with which things have been excised from Allie's life. Allie looked at him and he said, I know why this has happened to me, man. He said, God is showing me and showing you. He pointed his shaking index finger at me and widened his eyes that I'm just a man just like everybody else. It says, and this agnostic goes on to say, and he goes, we sat there a long, quiet time, and then we watched Ali's flickering image on the television screen some more. We are now up to 1971 as he prepared for his first Joe Frazier fight. Our most public figure was then the world's most beautiful man and the greatest athlete of all time. His tight, copper-colored skin glowing under the fluorescence, secret rhythms springing in loose firmness from his fingertips. I love that quote. I'm sort of spooked by the seeming precision with which things have been excised from Allie's life. Nebuchadnezzar came up with a tremendous conclusion. It's the same one that Muhammad Ali seems to have become more aware of and that he said it's because God wants me and he wants you and he wants everybody that read this article to realize that I'm nothing but a man, just like everybody else. Oh, I was the greatest. I stood outside the ring and I just challenged the world. I was like Nebuchadnezzar standing on the roof of his palace saying, boy, am I something or what? But now God's caught my attention and my left jab shakes like crazy and it doesn't fleck out there like it used to. And I began to realize for the first time in my life that I'm just a mortal human being like everybody else. See, the mission, missing equation, men and women, is God. You want to know why you're where you're at? Because God has put you there. And so we go back to verse 1 and 3, 1 through 3 of chapter 4. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live on all the earth, May your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. Let me just close and just throw out a couple applications. First application I see is this. You're laying in bed and you have that still, quiet voice that's talking to you. You know, the Bible says, David said, be still and know that I am God. That it's in the quietness of our hearts that God can...